Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your continued and enduring faithfulness to us. We thank you that your faithfulness extends beyond the reaches of the clouds and that you have been kind with us in ways that we don't deserve. We rejoice in the gospel message. We rejoice in the reconciliation that takes place because of what Christ has done in atoning for our sin on the cross. We thank you for this time to be here today. We pray that you might help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, as you know, is the go-to text regarding the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage that is oftentimes preached and read at Easter time. And we find ourselves here in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15 dealing with a very specific objection. Paul is offering a Christian apologetic, or we might say a Christian defense of the resurrection. And of course, this does include the resurrection of Christ, but Paul is also giving an apologetic for the resurrection of the dead in general. In other words, when we as believers in Christ die, our bodies will be resurrected. That will not be the end of us. It will not be the end of our lives. We simply will be resurrected and be in heaven for eternity. You may recall that Jesus himself faced a similar objection to the resurrection by a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came up to Jesus with the express intent to trap him And they gave him a made-up scenario, and they said, hey, there was this woman who married this guy, and he died, and then uh, she married his brother, and then he died, and there were seven brothers, and this happened seven times, and all the brothers died, and she was married at one point to each of the seven brothers. And the the, the Sadducees thought to themselves, boy, this is going to get him in trouble. We're going to prove that there is no such thing as a resurrection, because who was she married to? And so that's what they asked. Whose uh, who's wife will she be in the resurrection? And of course, Jesus, the uh, master logician, the, the master in the sense that he is Lord and creator of everything, uh, had no problem dealing with this objection. And so he responded very skillfully, and he told them that they were mistaken. And then he specifically gave this argument for the resurrection, He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. There is a resurrection. This is a quotation that Jesus took from Exodus 3 and verse 6 where we read this, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Uh, I will confess that uh, of all of the texts that I would have put forward to prove that there is a resurrection from the dead, I don't think I ever would have come across Exodus chapter 3 in verse 6 as a proof of the resurrection. Now, one of the reasons Jesus did this is because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so Jesus goes right to the Pentateuch, and he goes to prove to them that there is a resurrection. Now, what is Jesus getting at exactly here? 
I mean, how in the world does Exodus 3 and verse 6 prove a resurrection? Well, Jesus is essentially saying this. He, he focuses on the tense of one verb. That's what he's doing here. He's focusing on one verb and specifically the tense of that verb, the fact that it's present tense. And Jesus says essentially this. If there was no such thing as a resurrection, as you Sadducees say, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. But because God says, I am the God of Abraham, that means that they're still alive. That means that they are continuing to live even up until today. Likewise, Jesus, uh, as, as he chose a passage that I did not have on my list of ways to prove the resurrection, Paul, in the same way, chooses an argument that I don't know that I would have chosen either to prove that there is a resurrection. And yet, of course, we know that God's ways are above our ways, and he has more wisdom than we do in our own reserves. But Paul uses an argument uh, to prove the resurrection, and I'm going to give you a summary sentence here, and I should have put it up on the screen, but I failed to. Uh, The summary sentence, to show you the direction we're going to the passage today, is this. The resurrection must be true because Christian doctrine and Christian behavior presuppose it. My Christian doctrine and behavior assumes a resurrection. In other words, what Paul is going to say is, if there's no resurrection, doesn't make sense that you believe and do that. Doesn't make sense that you believe and do that. And by the way, it doesn't make sense that you believe and do that. Christian behavior and Christian doctrine presuppose a resurrection. Let's go ahead and read this passage and see what Paul is getting at. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34, Paul says this, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame." This passage today really looks like a hodgepodge of random things from Christianity. In fact, this looks, at surface, uh, surface glance here, like it would better be suited for the book of Proverbs, where it's this and then this and then this and then this and then this. But I would suggest to us that there is a theme that holds all of this together, and it does make sense. And so I want to use... Uh, this, uh, um, we'll look at these three points here <clears throat> as we look at the passage, and that is this. In verse 29, we see that salvation presupposes, or we could say assumes, a resurrection. Suffering presupposes a resurrection, and sanctification presupposes a resurrection. Let's begin with verse 29 here. Salvation presupposes a resurrection. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 18, a very strong apologetic for the resurrection, a defense of the resurrection. Last week, we had a little bit of a, uh, a detour 
where we were talking about the authority of God that is revealed because of the resurrection. He has all authority. It is so that God may be all in all to prove that he is supreme, that he is uh, above all else. And now we return back to the topic from a couple of weeks ago where Paul was giving a defense of the resurrection. Uh, In order to regain our bearings, we have to remember that there uh, were some people in the church in Corinth making the argument that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And in summary, we look at verse 12. Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? Okay, so this is what he is getting at in our present text. He is getting at the fact that there were some people in the church at Corinth making this claim. There is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. It does not exist. And Paul says, okay, well, I'll prove it to you. And he begins to go here and there and this and that. And we get to finally our present text. It is to this argument that Paul now returns. And he begins with the reason in verse 29. We read this, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Of course, that makes sense. I mean, why are people baptized because of the dead, right? (laughs) What is going on here in this particular text? Here's the type of argument that Paul is giving. He's basically saying this, if there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, then there's certain things that don't make sense. And you might as well just stop doing those things. And the first thing on the list is the baptism of the dead. Paul says, look guys, getting baptized on behalf of the dead makes no sense if there is no resurrection. And I think uh, all of us here today would say resurrection or not, this doesn't make sense anyway. What, what, is be, what is meant here by this statement being baptized on behalf of the dead? What is, pray tell, Paul's strange reference to being baptized on behalf of the dead? And the answer to this question, what does Paul mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, is we have no idea, or at least we are not totally sure what Paul means by this statement. It has been suggested that 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29 is one of, and I think some maybe have even suggested, the most difficult verse to understand in the entire Bible. What in the world is Paul talking about? And I am going to give you an answer to what the baptism of the dead is, or on behalf of the dead, and I am going to tell you right now ahead of time that I am not totally sure of this answer, okay? (laughs) I am giving you some speculation here, and I'm saying that uh, this has been something that has been argued back and forth for a very long time, Uh, but I think that the answer that I will give um, makes sense in light of the context. Let me start off, before I tell you what I think it means, by telling you what we can know for sure it does not mean, okay? When Paul says that there are people being baptized on behalf of the dead, I think most people, their initial response to that is that Paul is referring to some sort of a vicarious baptism. And what we mean by the word vicarious is that you are baptized so that benefits will extend to somebody else. This is what it does not mean. 
But some people have proposed that what this means is that you could be baptized as a Christian and some sort of benefit will extend to your dead relatives. So you have a dead relative who did not trust in Christ, and if I'm baptized on their behalf, then that will rescue them out of hell and they will be able to go to heaven. It does not mean that, okay? But baptized on behalf of the dead is what many people have thought that this means. And really, I won't go into all of the reasons why this can't be the case, but I'll just simply give you one reason why this can't be the case. If you cannot be baptized for your own salvation, okay, you can't be baptized for somebody else's salvation. This is not talking about a vicarious baptism. So here's what I think it means. Look at your Bible in verse 29. And I want you to look at the specific phrase that is translated on behalf of. Some of your translations may use the word for. On behalf of or for. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of or for the dead? This phrase, on behalf of or for, can also be translated this way because of, okay? I think this is a clue to what the meaning of this is. Instead of saying baptize on behalf of the dead or for their benefit in some way, it can be translated as baptized because of the dead. Why are people being baptized because of the dead? Um, in other words, here's what I think is going on. An un- uh, a, a believer would die, and an unbeliever would hear their salvation testimony, and they would say to themselves, wow, look at that person's life, and look at the faith they had in Christ. I need to go and be saved and be baptized myself. They're getting baptized because of the dead. <laughs> They're getting baptized because of the testimony of a believer who has already gone before them. These are, I would suggest, funeral sermon conversions in, in essence. Paul is saying, what's the value of getting saved and baptized if there's no resurrection? There's no point in this. Let, let me uh, give to you the way that John MacArthur summarizes this view. He says, we could guess that Paul may have simply been saying that people were being saved, baptism being the sign, because of the exemplary lives and witness of faithful believers who had died. They're being baptized because of the dead. Imagine that there's a funeral here in town for someone who's a believer, and the funeral sermon is preached, and the pastor shares the testimony of this now deceased brother in Christ, and in this testimony, he shares the gospel, and there is an unbeliever sitting in the audience hearing this funeral sermon, and this unbeliever comes under conviction, and after the funeral sermon, and the funeral is concluded, the unbeliever walks up to you and says this, boy, I understand the gospel now. And I am in awe of that person's testimony and the hope that they had in Christ. I want to become a Christian too and become baptized. They're becoming baptized because of the dead in that sense. One of the reasons that I think, and again, I told you this is a challenging verse. One of the reasons I think this is the correct interpretation is because it fits very well with the context. Paul is giving us a list of things that don't make sense if there's no resurrection. And 
Listening to someone's salvation testimony who had died and you yourself trusting in Christ, that doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection. Why would you do that? Why, why would you trust in Christ if you die and that's it? That's what he's saying. It does not make sense. This practice does not make sense if that is it. In other words, Paul is exposing an inconsistency in their thinking. Why go through all of this trouble if death is the end of everything? Just live it up. It doesn't make sense. We might sum it up this way. Salvation presupposes a resurrection. That's point number one. Salvation does not make sense without the resurrection. But it's not the only thing that presupposes a resurrection. Number one, salvation presupposes a resurrection. Number two, suffering presupposes a resurrection. Here we read this in 30 through 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's the main theme. If there's no resurrection, suffering doesn't make sense. If there is no resurrection from the dead, you need to live your life by minimizing your suffering. Compromise however you have to compromise. Live however you have to live, but just don't suffer. That's what Paul is saying. If... But, but that's not the case. We do endure suffering, and we even endure suffering that we have a choice about enduring. You, just don't stand for anything, and you could get rid of a lot of suffering. But we do stand for something because we know there's a resurrection. You see, suffering makes sense in a world where there are resurrections. It makes no sense in a world which there are none. John MacArthur says, if there were no resurrection of the believing dead, then suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel would be masochistic, suffering for suffering's sake. Think of persecution. Think of the Christians who failed to recant their faith and they died because of that. Think of the persecution going on in other countries at this very moment where there are people who will kill you because of your faith in Christ. The people who are threatening you with death saying, I will let you live if you will simply not be a Christian anymore. Think of that person right now who's going through that. And think of the person who says, I will not recant, I will keep my faith, and then he gets killed. That's going on in the world today. Do you realize that that is utter stupidity if there's no resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's like, I'm suffering. Why do you think I'm doing this? Do you think I'm doing this because I'm a masochist? Because I enjoy suffering? Because I enjoy this? You think I get a kick out of being thrown in the the prison every, every time I go to a city? You think I get a kick out of being whipped? You think I get a kick out of all these things and this is just a side hobby of mine? No, it makes no sense. It, it does make sense because Paul believes in a resurrection. There is something called a resurrection. But the Christian who endures suffering willingly is an odd sight indeed. And this is one of the reasons why the world looks at us cross-eyed. Some of our behavior as Christians makes no sense to them. And that's because we are making decisions in light of the long-term instead of the short term. 
Their decisions are only made for this life. Our decisions are made for this life and the next. We're looking at more, a bigger map than they're looking at. They want to minimize suffering because this world is all that there is to them. Now, by the way, I mean, we certainly want to minimize suffering too. We still don't want to be masochists. We don't want to enjoy suffering for the sake of suffering. But we are willing to endure it because of eternity. There's a difference there. In verses 30 through 31, we read this. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul refers to the sacrifices that he is making, the suffering that he endures. He is willing to endure danger. He is willing to die every day. He is willing to do this because of the resurrection. And then he says in verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, there are some who think he was referring to literal beasts here, like being put into an arena with wild animals, as was done in that day as a spectator sport to watch these Christians fight with lions or whatever it might be. Um, I would suggest that he's talking more of a figure of speech here, just all of the battles that he faced in Ephesus, which, um, which was intense when he was there. Uh, in either case, Paul is exposing himself to risk and to suffering. Whatever he means by saying he fought with wild beasts, he's exposing himself to risk. Our human tendency is to, uh, to, to, to minimize the risk that we face, It is to minimize the suffering that we face, and Paul is willing to expose himself to risk and to suffering, and he says it's pointless if the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, what should you do? Look at at the end of this verse. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you see his logic here? His logic is, if you guys are right, this small group of people at Uh, the church at Corinth, if you're right and there's no resurrection, then just live it up. Don't worry. Avoid suffering. Don't worry about salvation. Don't worry about the gospel. Don't worry about any of those things. Just eat and drink because tomorrow you're going to be dead. Richard Baxter says it this way. The face of death and nearness of eternity did much convince me what books to read what studies to prefer and prosecute, what company and conversation to choose. It drove me early into the vineyard of the Lord and taught me to preach as a dying man to dying men. In other words, Richard Baxter says that eternity had an effect on the way he lived his life here and now. Eternity, because of eternity, I'm going to devote my time to this and not to that. I'm going to do this and not that. Um, I'm going to live my life this way and not that way because this counts and this matters and this has meaning in the next life. Piper says it this way, if a person cannot imagine a rewarding future, there seems to be little reason for denying oneself of any immediate pleasure now. Drug addiction, overeating, gambling, 
uh, indolence, sexual promiscuity, lying, stealing. Why wouldn't a person do these things if there is no hope? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It makes sense. In the same way, Paul is saying that suffering presupposes a resurrection. Giving yourself over to the cause of Christ only makes sense if there is a resurrection. It's only (laughs) if there's a resurrection. That is the second reason, or the second presupposition. Number one, salvation presupposes a resurrection. Two, suffering presupposes a resurrection. And finally, sanctification presupposes a resurrection. In other words, sanctification and holiness and obedience make no sense if there's no resurrection. Do you see, by the way, um, if you look at kind of this outline, does that help to see that Paul's not randomly just bringing a bunch of stuff in here? He, he talks about this idea of salvation or baptism because of the dead, and then he like randomly switches gears to suffering, and now he's going to start talking about choosing your friends wisely. And it's like, what are you doing? But the thread that ties all this together is that these practices and these behaviors only make sense if there is a resurrection. And that is what's gluing all of this together. In verses 33 through 34, we read, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 33. Um, Go back to it here. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals is a verse that uh, I have memorized from the early days of Christian camps and all of these kinds of things early on. And it's a classic verse that is used time and time and time again to exhort us to choose our friends wisely. Uh, Bad company ruins good morals. In other words, What this means is that you are going to start to look like the people that you hang out with. Whether you like it or not, if this is your group of friends, you will look like them six months, a year, five years, ten years down the line. Choose bad friends and you'll become just like them. But with that being said... I've never given much thought to the oddity of its placement here in Scripture. Uh, It comes out of left field. And like I said earlier, this feels like it goes more in Proverbs than in a a statement, a treatise on the resurrection. If you had asked me, uh, can you give me a list of reasons why the resurrection is true? I don't think I ever, without this verse, would have said, Choose your friends wisely. That's how we know the resurrection is true. I, I, I don't know that that would have ever made any list that I would have put together. And yet here it is. Um, so verse 33 then teaches us two things instead of just one. Okay? And we need to learn both lessons. The, the first lesson, lesson number one, is the content of the statement itself. Let's focus on that for a minute. Bad company ruins good morals. Choose your friends wisely. Our minds go immediately to Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the relationship between these two passages? Psalm 1 says, The person is blessed who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, bad company ruins good morals. Don't walk in that way because you'll be influenced by them. We emphasize these verses to our children and for good reason. And so I am going to do the same today. Children, parents, this would be a time where you can nudge the child sitting next to you, okay, and say, Johnny, pay attention right now because I'm, you're about to hear some instruction that is going directly to you, okay? I see some of the children smiling, and I see some of the children trying to avoid eye contact with me, okay? <laughs> But either way, <laughs> either way, tune in, okay? Tune in. I want to tell you something. You need to be careful, children, whom you choose as friends, because you will one day begin to act like them. Be careful. Your parents can help you think through those decisions, and your parents can help to give you instruction in what is good and what is not good, what is helpful and what is not helpful. But know this, kids, that you will begin to act like the people that you hang around with. I want to give you something that... John MacArthur said, he said, it is impossible to associate regularly with wicked people without being contaminated both by their ideas and by their habits. You know what this means, children? It means that it is impossible for you to hang around people regularly who hate God, and it's impossible for you to not adopt something in, that, in their way of thinking or behaving. One of the reasons for this is because of something that we struggle with as humans, and that is something that we call, all right, children, I'm still talking to you. Adults are not allowed to answer this, okay? Children, the fear of, any children know? The fear of, the fear of, the adults are like, I know you know what Johnny just said. <laughs> the fear of? Come on, kids. You can be brave enough. The fear of man. <laughs> the fear of man, okay? That is something that all of us struggle with. And the fear of man is a biblical term from the book of Proverbs that means this. You and I want to impress other people, okay? Anyone here, adults can answer too, have you ever felt the urge to impress somebody else? Anybody? We have a lot of liars today, like a lot of you. <laughs> Has anybody ever wanted to impress somebody else? Okay, more of you are being honest. There's a few that are holding out. Okay, well... I'll talk to you later. <laughs> um, 
Okay, kids, think of it this way. Think of the last time that your parents or a friend of yours saw something that you did and they said, boy, you did a really great job at that. Can you think of a time when that happened? Okay, how did that make you feel? Pretty good, right? It made you feel pretty good as, uh, as it ought to. Uh, and you may remember at that time when that happened, you might, you might have thought to yourself, I want to keep doing those kinds of things so that I will continue to get those kinds of compliments. Now, that's in general a good thing. Now, in the same way, though, if you get around some people that are not good friends, you might be tempted to do things that impress them and get them to tell you, you did a good job at this. That was great that you stood up in this kind of a way. You might even be tempted to go so far as to do things that are displeasing to the Lord because you want their approval instead of God's approval. Do you know what we call this? The fear of man. (laughs) Now, you might say to yourself that you are strong enough to fight against that temptation. And I just want to uh, tell you this, that I am not strong enough to fight against that temptation. Your parents are not strong enough to fight against that temptation. And this means that you are not strong enough to fight against that temptation. And so you would be wise from a young age to begin forming friendships that are good and that are honorable to the Lord. And your parents, again, can help you think through those things. Okay, kids? And adults, too. We can think through that, too. That is lesson number one from verse 33. Lesson number one is bad company corrupts good morals. You will begin to look like the people that you hang out with. The second lesson that we need to learn from this verse is the reason why it's here instead of in Proverbs. And here's the lesson. The reason that it's here is this. Why would you pursue holiness in this way if there's no resurrection? He's trying to prove that there's a resurrection, and and he's saying, bad company corrupts good morals. That only makes sense if there's a resurrection. Because if there's no resurrection, Go live like whatever you want to live like. Go hang out with whoever you want to hang because this life is all you got and so live it up here and now. That's the, that's the reason for the placement of that here. And the same is true of the very next verse, verse 34, because he continues on this theme of sanctification. He's saying certain behaviors as Christians make no sense in a world with no resurrections. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We might say it this way. The resurrection is a check against sin. Or perhaps a simpler way to say it is shape up. Okay? Stop doing that particular thing. Wake up. Stop sinning. Some of you guys don't even know who God is. Open up your Bibles, Paul says. Or today, we might say, open up your Bibles 
and also read Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy or another book on, the, on God's attributes. Take a look at who God is. Take a look at his character. Take a look at all of these things and get to know God. The lesson here is the same. Sanctification presupposes a resurrection. I want to give you a quote from a Greek historian who described what happened in his community when there was a plague that came upon the people. And here's what he says. People committed every shameful crime and eagerly snatched at every lustful pleasure. Now, why do you think they would have done this when a plague came? Because they realized, I ain't going to live too much longer. So, guess what? No more rules. I get to do whatever I want to. Which makes sense if there's no resurrection. The shorter your life is, the more you are tempted to pack in as much pleasure as possible, regardless of the consequences. That's what happened here in this city. They, they thought, oh, I'm going to live this long. And then all of a sudden the plague comes, I'm going to live this long. Um, pack it in. <laughs> Whatever you could fit into there, just do it now and live it up, okay? Now, the, 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 the unbeliever who assumes they're going to live a, a nice normal life, I don't know what it is, 75, 80, 90, whatever the average lifespan is, you believe, I'm going to live this long, there still is, I've got to pack in stuff because once I die, that's it. The Christian believes there is no cutoff here that it goes forever. I don't have to sin. And it, sanctification makes sense in a world where there is a resurrection. It's exactly what Paul is saying. If there is nothing after this life, then it makes sense to do as much as you can right here and right now, regardless of the consequences. Forget obedience. Obedience is just a drag. Live it up a little bit. And so what Paul does here is he gives to us three different assumptions, three different presuppositions, three different things that we do or believe as Christians that only make sense if there's a resurrection. And so for all of the resurrection deniers out there, Paul is saying, you need to drastically change your life if that's, if that's what's going on. And he's saying, and, and actually, he's, he's really saying, don't drastically change your life. Still be, obey, still be willing to suffer, but just change your faulty view on the resurrection and get that in line. And so that's what the passage is about today. Uh, let's sum it up this way. Actually, I'm going to sum it up a few different ways. Here's the first way to sum up the passage in, in the three sections. If there is no resurrection, you may as well not worry about salvation. Don't worry about that. Number two, if there is no resurrection, you may as well live for pleasure. <laughs> Minimize suffering. Number three, if there is no resurrection, you may as well not worry about holiness. <laughs> Don't worry about choosing your friends wisely. That's, who cares about that? <laughs> You're going to die and that's it. That's summed one way. Here's a different way to sum it up. Salvation proves a resurrection. Suffering proves a resurrection. Sanctification proves a resurrection. All of these things that we do as Christians prove that there is something 
like a resurrection, that there is a resurrection. And then the third way to look at this, and actually maybe not so much as a third way to look at it, but really this is the application today, is we're going to apply each of these three points. And that is this. Number one, repent and believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation because of the resurrection. If, if you are here today and you are an unbeliever, meaning that you have not repented and believed on Christ, meaning you do not know Christ as Savior, if you are living a life under your own lordship or attempting to live under your own lordship or your own autonomy, and you have failed to believe in the gospel, the admonition for you is to repent and believe on Christ because there is something after this world. There is an eternity. There is a resurrection. And by the way, there's a resurrection to life and there's a resurrection to death called hell for all of eternity. And so you can't live it up because everything you do has meaning and purpose because of the resurrection and because of eternity. That's application number one, or the summary of the first point said another way. The second point, the summary of it, or the application from it, is be willing to suffer for your Christianity because of the resurrection. You need to, re- you need to recall and remember that any kind of suffering that you face as a Christian is not mindless suffering, but it means something, and it has value because of the resurrection. Now, suffering has a bit of a spectrum. You can have something as extreme as having your head cut off because of uh, persecution, which does happen today still because of Christianity. Or we can think of suffering as something as minimal as a coworker or whatever snickering at you because you believe in Christ. Now, that is suffering. It's small on the scale, but it's uncomfortable and undesirable, whatever it is. And so the call for us is to recognize that that person snickering at me all the way up to dying for my faith is something that I ought to be willing to do because of the resurrection. This world is not the only world. There is something more. And I am willing to go through suffering because my God has called me to do that. And I love my God and I will put my life in his care, and he will run it however he wants to run it. Be willing to go through suffering. And then the third point of application, or third summary, uh, is this. Rigorously pursue holiness and obedience because of the resurrection. Now, much more could be said about this. We are to pursue holiness. Uh, If you were here at our message a few weeks ago on Christian sanctification, uh, you would know that God's grace Um, enables us to pursue obedience, and it gives us the desire to pursue obedience. We are not to pursue obedience and holiness in a legalistic fashion, where it is obedience for obedience's sake. We are to pursue it because we love Christ, and it is our reasonable service to do this for Him. But nevertheless, we are to pursue it, and we are to pursue it because of the resurrection. What you do in this life matters, and it matters because there is a resurrection from the dead. All of these things matter. All of these things have value. All of these things are important because of Christ and what he has done for us and because of the resurrection 
that we will have one day after we die when Christ brings us back from the dead to be with him for all of eternity. Thank you, God, for today, for your kindness, for your love and your mercy. We pray that you might help us today, that we might honor you, that we might glorify you, that we might praise you. I pray that you might help us to believe in the resurrection and that we would order our lives accordingly. You've given to us some very clear responses to the doctrine of the resurrection. And we see very clearly how in your word the pattern is always that uh, orthodoxy informs orthopraxy, or that is to say that our belief determines our behavior. And in this passage, we see that our belief about the resurrection orders, guides, and determines how we ought to act. We ought to act first by believing in Christ for salvation, We ought to act secondly by willing to endure suffering. And finally, we ought to act in such a way as to pursue obedience because of this doctrine of the resurrection. Of course, there are other doctrines and motivations for these things. This is not exhaustive, but this is part of it. And I pray that as Christians, you would help us to, to apply these things to our own lives, to honor you in this way, in Christ's name, amen.